Welcome to the First Responder Leadership Podcast, the show where we talk about mental health and wellness in the first responder community. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the First Responder Leadership Podcast. Happy New Year. It's a brand new year. It's already eight days into the new year. We can't believe that that time is flying. I hope you had a great holiday season and I appreciate you joining us for the First Responder Leadership Podcast. As you may see that it has a new name. It used to be called the First Responder Friday Podcast, but now it's the First Responder Leadership Podcast. And so it's appropriate that we have a leader in the first responder community as our very first guest in the new year. And I want to bring on Stephen Stevens. And uh, for many of you, he needs no introduction, but let me read just a little bit, uh, kind of the highlight reel for uh, Mr. Stevens. He is the chief of police with the Buffalo Grove, Illinois Police Department. He is the past president of the Illinois Association of Chiefs of Police and the immediate past president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Serves on a whole bunch of different things and as well as... Uh, an organization called Blue Help that many of us know about. And he's on the executive board of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. He's uh, worked with the, the White House, and he's also testified on the Senate Judiciary Hearing on Police Reform. Mr. Cass Stevens, welcome to First Responder Leadership Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So you have had an interesting year, as we all have in 2020, <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, I have. The best laid plans for uh, what I thought my year as ICP president would be, and things changed quickly. Yeah. So uh, what did you start out as? I mean, you had some initiatives when you first became president. You had some initiatives that you wanted to focus on. Can you tell us a little bit about those initiatives? Sure. I, I had three main areas of focus as uh, incoming president. And uh, the prevention of police officer suicide was number one on my list. Um, I also wanted to address um, response, police response to active threats, which is a little bit different than police response to active shooters. We're very good here in the U.S. in training our officers on responding to active shooters and our schools and our businesses. But ICP, people forget sometimes we're an international organization. We have 31,000 members, 165 countries. And so I really wanted to focus on police response to active threats that are not active shooters, which is what a lot of other countries see. So uh, th those are really kind of my two big areas of focus. And, uh, you know, it was a little, little tough to address those. And then my third one was global road safety. But even with the pandemic, we were still able to do a lot of good work in all three of those areas. Mm -hmm. So going back to your focus on just the police suicide, what's been happening with law enforcement over the past couple of years? Well, this is part of the reason I wanted to make it one of my priorities. I've been in the business for 44 years, and uh, I've seen the devastation that uh, police officer suicide brings to agencies. Um, I've, uh, I've watched how law enforcement agencies in the past have dealt with, or in more cases, not dealt with the issue of police officer suicide. Um, typically in our profession, we just ignored it a lot of times. Um, officers didn't have the help that they really needed. They didn't have the place to go to seek help. Uh, most agencies back in the day only had EAP. 
And a lot of officers didn't want to go to EAP because it was connected with the department, connected with their city. Uh, they sometimes didn't trust uh, who was there and they weren't sure if their issues would be kept confidential. And a lot of officers feared actually losing their job or being taken off the street if they said they were suffering from uh, some mental health issues and were looking for help. Yeah. So as, as a chief, you know, bringing it down to the local level, what is your main concern for your officers? Uh, I want to make sure that they are healthy, both physically and mentally. And to do that, and those two are really connected. And so if you have an officer safety and wellness program, a full comprehensive officer safety and wellness program, it should include both physical health, nutrition, and mental health. And there's, there's so many facets of that. Um, but as an agency, you have, as an agency chief, I have to make sure that I'm addressing that with all of my officers. And there's, there's a lot of ways to do that. Do you think that the mental health part is something that across the years, many chiefs have not focused on that? Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. They have not focused on it. Um, you know, you, you look at things and how they change in the profession, and I've seen the changes over uh, four decades. Um, things like I would have never thought that my officers would be carrying Narcan because suddenly we had to be professionals in dealing with drug overdoses. I never thought that I would have to send my officers to training to be experts in homelessness. And I never expected that I'd have to uh, send all my officers to CIT and uh, mental health first aid training. And so all these things have changed over the years. And now last few years, thankfully, a lot of agencies have realized I need to address officer mental health and wellness uh, because We've been losing officers at an alarming rate. You look at the numbers over the last five years, we have lost more officers to suicide than we have line of duty deaths. And that's frightening. So example, 2019, we lost 128 officers in line of duty. We lost 228 officers to suicide. That's a problem. And if we don't address it, um, then we're part of the problem. So as a chief in your local uh, jurisdiction department there, how do you convince the, the people who count the beans to pay for uh, programs, you know, ahead of time? You know, so much you know, we've talked to so many people and it's it's much cheaper to you know, take care of mental health ahead of time than it is to fix it on the back end. But how do you convince the, the, the money holders, the purse string holders to 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 implement those programs? Um, you got to have the courage to put up a good argument. Uh, but you said it right there. It, it's cheaper to deal with it on the front end than it is on the back end. Um, and again, we're talking about people here. We're talking about people's lives. Um, I told a story to one of my elected officials not long ago, and uh, and they want this person was asking me about you know officer mental health and why this is so important. And I said, let me tell you a quick story. I said I was speaking to a woman a few years ago. And she was telling me this story about how she was driving into work one day and she saw something in the ditch and she stopped and she stepped out and it was a dead body in the ditch. Clearly a pedestrian had been struck by a car and the car left the scene and this person was left dead in the ditch. 
And as she's telling me the story, I can hear her voice choking and I can see her hands shaking a little bit. I'm like, oh my Lord, this, you know, this is horrible for you to have witnessed this. When did this happen? And she said, oh, about 25 years ago. 25 years ago. It sounded like she was telling a story that just happened last week. Now, I said to my elected official, let's compare that to the number of things like that that a police officer sees in their career. Hundreds of dead bodies, people killed in car crashes, people who commit suicide, people who have been murdered. This is what an officer sees in their career. So if you understand how it affected this one woman, this is the only thing that happened like that to her in her life in 25 years. And then you multiply that by what an officer sees, we better be taking care of our officers. We better be paying attention to their mental health. Yeah, it, it really becomes a an important part. I think it should become an important part of every agency. And But so often, just like the officer that we're working with that's in our film trailer, the agency doesn't really always acknowledge that this is an issue and kind of wants to shove it under the rug. You're absolutely correct. And uh, I... I will never mention the town or anything, but I but I, I will tell this quick story because it's so important. And it's one of the reasons that uh, police officer suicide became one of my priorities as IACP president. About 10 years ago or so, uh, I read an article in the newspaper and there was a police department that suffered three police officer suicides in 18 months. Hmm. And I remember a line from a newspaper article where the reporter asked the chief what he thought contributed to this. And the police chief said, and I paraphrase, that those officers were weak. Mm. And I was so personally and professionally offended by that remark. Um, I, I made it my mission that when I became ICP president, I was going to address this and I was going to make sure that we get rid of that stigma that officers have that, that makes them feel like they can't seek help. It's like officers are supposed to be superhuman, right? That they're beyond, you know, human emotions. And, and, and you can't do that. You can't separate. You're, you're a, a whole person. Absolutely. We all came from the same human race. <laughs> You know, police officers are humans like everybody else. We just happened to wear the uniform and we chose this profession. And uh, I had a reporter uh, ask me during my ICP presidency, he said, I, I don't understand it, chief. He goes, if you have an officer come to you and say, I, I have, I'm having issues and I need help and you send them to whatever, a psychologist, psychiatrist, something you see, you send them for help and are you going to feel comfortable putting them back on the street? I said, are you kidding me? I would feel more comfortable putting that officer back on the street than any other officer because that one had the guts to step forward and say, I need help. I'm more concerned about the ones who aren't asking for help. But so often it's just the opposite. Chiefs and people in leadership say, oh, you know, you're seeing a shrink. Well, we're going to pull you back and put you on desk duty behind the scenes. Right. Right, exactly. And that's the biggest mistake. You've, you've got to send that message as a police chief, as a sheriff, as your state police highway patrol colonel, whatever your position is, your leadership in law enforcement. You have to send that message 
that it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to ask for help. And you need to have resources other than employee assistance program. You need to put together that peer support group. You need to talk about it. Talk about it at every staff meeting. So all of your command staff know that you support your officers in these types of programs. And it's okay to step forward and say, yeah, I need to talk to somebody. You know, from what I've heard and, you know, listened to officers around the country, when they don't have those le- that those people in leadership who, who acknowledge that, it becomes this thing where everybody's dealing with their stuff, but no one's talking about it because everyone's afraid to step up. And then it just snowballs and becomes worse. And, and personally, I think this is why you see stuff, ha- you know, on the evening news. Exactly. And, and what do officers, if they don't have the resources and if they don't feel like that there's some confidence in their agency that they'll be treated appropriately if they seek help, what do they typically do? They turn to alcohol. They sometimes turn to drugs and they turn to these destructive resources rather than helpful resources. And so that's been the pattern for years. And that's what we need to change. We need to change that stigma. We need to make sure that our officers at any level know it's okay to step forward and say, I I just, I need someone to talk to. And there are so many resources out there. You mentioned Blue Help. That's a great resource. Um, Copline, which is a peer hotline for police officers. That's a great resource. Cop to Cop, which is uh, a resource through uh, the New Jersey FOP Lodge. There are so many resources out there even outside your department, but you have to start within and starting from within means you need to start forming your own peer support group. And there are, you know, I've talked to chiefs and they're like, well, we don't have the money for the training. We know that. Well, sometimes that's where IECP comes in. We have uh, funding at IECP through CRITAC to help do just these types of things. So in your time with IECP and you've been, you've talked to leaders from around the world, is this a universal issue? It absolutely is. Uh, when I gave my uh, introductory speech when I was sworn in as president a little over a year ago, October 2019, and I talked about the depth and breadth of this problem, um, I not only gave statistics from the U.S., I gave statistics from the U.K., I gave the statistics from Spain and from uh, departments around the globe where I talked to the police leaders and they said, we're seeing the same thing. They were seeing it in Ireland. They were seeing it in London the same things uh, through our profession. So in, as you've talked to these leaders from around the world, who is doing it right when it comes to mental health and what are they doing? Well, there are a number of agencies that are doing it right. Um, I believe Scotland Yard's got a good handle on it, uh, much like a lot of agencies in the U.S. that are, that are following some of these protocols set up uh, through IECP. Um, as I said, when we, uh, when I had my, priorities, but then this whole global pandemic came along and kind of put a damper on some of them. Um, We still continued the work that we wanted to do for all of our members, and those are global members. So, you know, we put together, um, because of this officer suicide and increase for a number of years, uh, we launched this national consortium on preventing police officer suicide. And this was a group of about 40 to 45 multidisciplinary experts And these were experts in law enforcement, mental health, suicide prevention, families. And 
we had conversations about the critical needs of not officers, just officers, but their families and law enforcement leaders. And we wanted to focus on evidence-based strategies to support officers. And so throughout an entire year of this group of experts uh, working together, ICPs recently released tools and resources to assist departments, to assist leaders, to assist families. So if people go to the ICP website, they will see the final report on the National Consortium on Preventing uh, Law Enforcement Suicide. And they'll also see about a 40 page document called the Comprehensive Framework for Law Enforcement Suicide Prevention. All the tools and the information are there in one place. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. So um, with, with mental health being such a key issue and obviously COVID has impacted you know, all of us in some way or another. How have you seen COVID exacerbate the issue of mental health when it comes to law enforcement? Well, I think you're seeing a lot of uh, additional anxiety and angst in our profession. And it's not just with um, the global pandemic, but also related to all the civil unrest. Sure. Both of these hit together at the same time, essentially, and it was the worst perfect storm. And so, I mean, you, you've seen it. You see these unprecedented numbers of police officers that are leaving the profession. Right. Police officers are retiring. They're retiring early. They're flat out quitting and saying, I've had enough. So you, you know that that stress, that, that issue is out there. So now, even more than ever, it's important for police leaders to make sure that we're addressing this issue within our agency because of, of both the pandemic and the issues related to the pandemic, people having to be quarantined, some people having to stay away from their families. We're not, we're not getting together in groups like we used to in law enforcement. And that's, you know, that's part of our release. Conferences and meetings and symposiums have been canceled. And so there's a lot of built up anxiety and police leaders need to recognize this and they need to address it. Hmm. And, and, you know, with the defund the police movement, I mean, I mean, kind of address that a little bit from your perspective. Well, um, I'll try to make this comparison story quick. I had somebody ask me about this. It was actually when I was testifying before um, the Senate, Senate Judiciary and the defund movement came up. And so I said, well, let me tell you a story. I said, back in the 1970s, um, across this country, we had over 600,000 beds in various institutions to treat people suffering from mental health issues. That was in the 70s, 600,000 beds. Today, across this country, we have less than 50,000 beds. Our population has increased. So all of a sudden, we have no more places for people in this country who are suffering from mental health to go to. So what happened then? The issue of mental health in our society had been dumped on the doorstep of law enforcement. Mental health across this country. Social services have been defunded across this country, which is why we're dealing more with homelessness. Drug addiction has been defunded across this country. So all those social ills have been defunded since the 70s, and all of them 
dumped on the doorstep of law enforcement. Now, suddenly we have to be experts in all of these issues. And if we don't get it right, we catch the blame. So I, I asked some of the people in the Senate hearing, how well do you think that defund movement worked for our society? So if you think for one minute defunding the police is a good idea, you couldn't be further from the truth. Now, what you need to do is fund law enforcement appropriately. And when I hear people say it would defund the police and take away things like, what's the first thing they look at? Your training budget. Yet at the same time, the other side of that coin is the first thing that a lot of critics of law enforcement say is we're not well trained. Well, you, you can't have both sides of that. You can't say I'm going to defund the police and at the same time say, well, you're not trained well enough. And speaking of training, do you think that mental health should be front and center in the academy? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, it should. And what would that look like? Um, so, well, you you know, a lot of us, like my agency, uh, I've sent nearly everyone to 40-hour CIT training. I've sent 100% of my officers to the eight-hour mental health first aid. Uh, because of what I just explained about our society has dumped this issue on the doorstep of law enforcement. You look up the statistics in just about any community and the number of mental health related calls for service that police respond to have been skyrocketing over the last five to 10 years. Well, we better be training our officers on how to respond to those things. De-escalation, dealing with mental health. You have to have that training and you can't have an officer graduate from the academy without that important information being one of the top one or two things that we deal with in this country as law enforcement, and then wait until, you know, they're done with FTO training and maybe they're on the street for a year or two and they've completed their probation. Oh, now let's send you some training. <laughs> you need that up front. You know, I've heard there's some agencies who are doing an annual mental health checkup that just like they have to get qualified with their weapon and other things, you know, they have to have this, you know, meeting with a, with a psychologist to just to see how they're doing. Do you think that's a great idea? Uh, I've heard a number of agencies that have done that. Um, I don't think that's a bad idea at all. Um, again, and, and I've talked to some officers about it and they said, well, if you make it, if, you know, my chief makes it mandatory, I'm not going. I go, well, it's only mandatory that you attend. It's not mandatory that you talk. But everybody that I know that has gone winds up talking because they know it's a protected conversation. And that's what's important. That's what concerns officers. There was a, and I forget who it was I was talking to recently, some, somebody out in California. They said their agency does this and it's just become part of their DNA. It's just part yes. of what they do on an annual basis. It's like, oh, have you seen, have you seen the shrink this year yet? You know, have you checked that box off? And, and they look forward to it because that's that time to just to kind of vent and to talk. And, and knowing, like you said, their talk is their, whatever they say is protected. Well, and, and there's no better proof that that's an important thing to do than, uh, so a couple of years ago, we hired here uh, our first full-time uh, police social worker. And while one of the reasons we hired a full-time police social worker is because we want that person to be a backup for officers, to do a lot of follow-up on things like domestic violence calls, to be able to provide uh, guidance and services for victims of domestic violence that an officer typically can't do. The officer responds, takes the report, makes an arrest if they 
need to, and then they have to go back to their next call. And the police social worker can help that victim get an order of protection, find a safe place to stay, find some other resources. But what we found is our police social worker is also an incredible resource to our officers. And we let our officers know, um, our police social worker is here anytime you're on or off shift, um, you can go in her office, close the door and have a privileged conversation. And uh, she has been a godsend to our agency. What would you say to those chiefs or those others in leadership who perhaps don't see this as a thing that they need to worry about? You're, you're making a grave mistake and you're doing a, an incredible disservice to your employees. Yeah. And so what can they do? What, what should be the first thing they do if they want to make change? Uh, I think establishing a peer support group is probably one of the first things you should do. It's one of the easiest things to do. doesn't cost a lot. And again, I, I briefly mentioned CRITAC. Uh, it's a Collaborative Reform Initiative Technical Assistance Center. And that's part of IACP. And uh, as an example, if you want to form a peer support group on your agency, you can uh, get a hold of IACP. Uh, you can request CRITAC funding. And IACP will provide the funding and they will provide the subject matter experts and they will send people to your agency and help you develop a peer support program. They will give you model policy. They will give you procedures and all of that, all those resources are there. You just have to ask for it. And it's one of the easiest and most important things to do. And when we established our peer support group here almost two years ago, um, even I was amazed at the number of officers who say, I want to be involved in this. I want to be part of this. You know, as as I talk to people around the country, I've kind of noticed that, you know, leadership is a is a vital thing for all of us. I mean, there's someone who once said that everything rises and falls on leadership. What is needed in police leadership in America and around the world? What is needed? Uh, I think courage. Courage to be able to make decisions, even if those decisions are unpopular. And this goes back to some conversations that I had uh, that you mentioned when I talked about defunding police with uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee. And we talked about a lot of other things, too, about decertifying police officers and why, quote unquote, bad officers are still on the job. Uh, sometimes that comes down to leadership, um, not being willing to make those difficult decisions. And so I think the important thing for our profession is courageous leadership that's willing to make the decisions that are difficult and many times unpopular, but need to be made for the betterment of our profession. Boy, that is, those are very true words. And sometimes um, courageous leadership is sometimes hard to come by in, in our world today because we're also, uh, judged by, you know, people on social media and everywhere else. But I think it's important. Um, so where is law enforcement as a whole headed? Wow. Um, <laughs> great. That's a great question. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody recently and they said, uh, you know, boy, this must be a, a tough time to be a police officer. And, and uh, who would want to be a police officer right now? Who would want to enter that profession? And certainly the numbers have dwindled. You can ask uh, any police leader across the nation when you're recruiting, 
what are the numbers of police officers showing up for your orientation that are filing applications to be a police officer compared to 10, 20, 30 years ago? Absolutely, the numbers are down, way down. But I counter with, I actually think this is one of the best times to enter the profession. Because of everything that's going on in our profession, if you want to be part of the change to make our profession better, then now's the time to get into the profession. Because now is when we all need to move forward and continue a lot of the things that we've been doing to make this profession more professional. I think it would be a great time for people to enter the profession. You want to make change? Then then pick up an application and be part of that change. What would you say to those of us who are citizens in our communities? What can we do to support law enforcement? What can we do to support first responders in general? Oh, that's a great question. I'm glad that you asked because I, I have two answers here. Uh, number one, attend your local citizen police academy. If your police department has it, attend it because you will learn more about what it's like to be a police officer than in any other manner. And if your agency or the community you live in doesn't have a citizen police academy, ask them to start one, help support them. Uh, But my second answer is be vocal because I truly believe the greatest, greatest percentage of the people in this country support and value law enforcement. But that's not typically the voice that we hear. We hear the voice of the loud critics, and people tend to believe that that's the majority of people who are critics of law enforcement. I don't believe that for one minute. I believe that there are a majority of people that support the police, but what they need to do is step forward and say so. Hmm. So so final kind of wrap up here, what do you do personally to keep yourself healthy and uh, on the right track? Um, well, I also talk with our police social worker. Uh, I, I take my time to chat with her as well. Um, sometimes it's just to talk about the frustrations of my job, just so I have somebody to talk to. Uh, but also, and I mentioned this earlier on, it's both mental health and it's physical health. Um, so I, I eat better. I exercise. I do all these things to help reduce anxiety being, and become a better person, both physically and mentally. Hmm. And those are things that all of us should be doing on a regular basis, right? Just so we can all be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially coming out of a year like 2020 that we just went through. Oh my goodness. Yes. So, um, so what's next for you? Uh, that's a great question. And as I enter 2021, um, I'm entering my 45th year in law enforcement. I stopped in uh, 1976 in the military police with the 101st Airborne. I've been doing nothing but law enforcement since then. I love this job. I love coming into work every day. Uh, But I know there's something different in my future. And so I'm looking forward to the next adventure. I'm not sure what that's going to be, but I'm definitely looking forward to it. Hmm. Well, first of all, you know, thank you for your service to our country and then to your local community and actually to our police community as a whole. You've... uh, really made an impact. And, and, and I think just with your uh, vision for dealing with mental health and wellness in law enforcement, I think that's what we need. We need more leaders like you who are making a difference in their local jurisdiction and then in, you know around the world. We really do need that kind of leadership. 
Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Thank you, Chief, for uh, joining us today on the First Responder Leadership Podcast. I really appreciate your time and uh, your insights into these important issues. Thank you very much. You have been watching First Responder Leadership Podcast. My name is Conrad Weaver, and please join us next week when I bring on a, a chief James Price, he is a chief with the Toledo Fire and Rescue Department, has an amazing story that he's going to share with us and some of the leadership challenges that they face in the fire service. This is the First Responder Leadership Podcast. You have been listening to the First Responder Leadership Podcast. Be sure to connect with us on our social media sites at PTSD911Movie on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Today's show has been brought to you by PTSD911 the documentary film that will raise awareness, smash the stigma of asking for help, and inspire change in agencies around the country. We are looking for people who want to help us tell this story. If you are passionate about the first responder community, please make a tax-deductible donation toward the production of our film. Visit ptsd911movie.com, click on the Support This Film button, and make a donation. We're so grateful for everyone who's joined with us to help us make this film a reality. We can't do it without your support. Thank you. And we would love to have your feedback on this show. So please smash the subscribe button and go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That really means a lot and it helps more people discover the show. My name is Conrad Weaver and we'll see you next time on the First Responder Leadership Podcast.